Our question is, what is Medicare for All? But for this episode, we're going to look at how to improve our healthcare system. Do we need Medicare for All? Or are there other policy options that exist to improve our healthcare system and our health? Welcome to Understanding Medicare for All. I'm your host, Stacey Yee. And I'm your other host, Jake Petrini. Hey, Stacy, do you know what Medicare for All is? No, do you? No. We, we are confused, perplexed, interested, curious, and uncertain about Medicare for All. We are honored and humbled to be joined by John McDonough, Professor of Public Health Practice in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Professor McDonough received a doctorate in public health from the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan and a master's in public administration from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Professor McDonough has authored articles appearing in Health Affairs, the New England Journal of Medicine, and other journals. He has written three books, Inside National Health Reform, Experiencing Politics, Legislators' Stories of Government and Healthcare, and Interests, Ideas, and Deregulation, The Fate of Hospital Rate Setting. Professor McDonough also has a plethora of experience in U.S. politics and health policy. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Professor McDonough. We are thrilled to have an experienced American politician and health policy expert to help us explain the politics behind health reform in the U.S. Thank you. Nice to be here. So to start, what has been your experience in American politics and health policy? Well, lots, but I'll just hit a couple of headlines. One is that I was a Massachusetts state representative, an elected official in the Massachusetts House for 13 years between 1985 and 1997. I represented Jamaica Plain. My first year, I got madly in love with health policy, head over heels, and I've been in it ever since. And I ultimately became the chair of the Joint Committee on Healthcare in the legislature at the latter part of my years there and was deeply involved in all things Massachusetts health. And between 2003 and 2008, I was executive director of the Massachusetts Healthcare Advocacy Group known as Healthcare for All. And we were deeply and centrally involved in the process leading to the passage of Massachusetts healthcare reform in 2006, a near universal healthcare law that is more popularly known as Romney Care. And then um, between 2008 and 2010, I worked in the US Senate in DC for Senator Ted Kennedy as a staff member on the committee that he chaired, so-called HELP Committee, Health Education, Labor, and Pension, where I specifically worked on the writing and passage of the Affordable Care Act, AKA Obamacare. Mm -hmm. And then I write and make trouble and get into trouble. So you have a wealth of experience in U.S. health reform, politics, and health policy. So given what you know today after your several decades of experience, what do you think is most needed in the U.S. health system today, and what do you think is the best way forward? The system needs a thorough, total overhaul. And frankly, Medicare for all, in my policy view, would be great medicine for it. We have a system that is by far the most expensive and the least accessible of any advanced country on earth. And even middle income countries are superior to our system. We spend vast amounts of money for mediocre to poor quality. And most importantly, the population health measures in the United States are abhorrent. 
we have a despicably high rate of infant mortality, maternal mortality, low birth weight. We have had declining life expectancy for three years in a row, and our life expectancy is far below all of our advanced nation peers like Germany, France, Britain, Australia, you name it, we're, we're worse. We have a skyrocketing crisis of obesity and overweight that leads to immense healthcare problems. You know, a lot of the problems we tend to point the finger at the medical care sector, and certainly there's a lot of fault there. And at the same time, I have a little bit of sympathy for them because, you know, the medical care community did nothing to create the obesity epidemic or the epidemic of gun violence or so much of the inequities in American society. They are on the receiving ends of those social determinants of health. And so, you know, the answer is partly fixing the medical care system and making it function and work at a level that I think Americans deserve for what we invest in it. And it's also, though, greater societal reforms that address not health care, but health. And we fall particularly short on that. So those are some of my diagnoses. Mm -hmm. I think Medicare for all would do more than anything to reverse our standing and our trend. Um, and at the same time, I regrettably conclude that Medicare for all for the foreseeable future is politically impossible and would be a damaging move. You mentioned some of the more societal reforms. So what are some alternatives outside of the healthcare sector that you think policymakers could uh, promote to kind of improve healthcare or efficiency or just quality in general that are not? We need to, we need to seriously, aggressively confront the obesity epidemic. And this, you know, you go back to Adam Smith, the kind of father of modern economics in the late 18, 1700s. And he actually said, he said, you know, of all the forms of taxation, the ones that make the most sense are taxing the things that harm society and harm people. So he was all in favor of taxes on tobacco taxes on alcohol, taxes on gambling, all those kinds of things for him were precisely the things that a society should tax as far as practicable to try to steer the behavior of the citizenry in a socially advancing direction. So you don't have to outlaw it, but you tax the heck out of it and you get a lot of the results that you want. There's, and, and it's been known, it's been proven, demonstrated over and over again on tobacco policy that the, you can have education, you can have quit lines, cessation assistance, all that stuff is important. What really gets a bang out of the buck in reducing smoking is taxing the hell out of it. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're doing right now. And that's one of the major reasons why levels of smoking among adults in the United States, that's the one bright spot in the United States in international health is our lower rate of smoking versus almost every other nation. There's a few that are better. Australia is way better than us. They, they aggressively tax smoking and they also put very graphic warning labels on every package. The FDA tried to do that in the United States and the Supreme Court said you can't do it. And so, so maybe we have to amend the Constitution to allow graphic warning labels on, on tobacco products. But you know, whatever the, the, the practice is that leads to ill health, 
There are ways that we can steer society so that we minimize it and then have enormous health advantages as a result of it. Uh, and we have to get at that with obesity and probably the easiest, first, smartest way is to tax the hell out of SSBs, sugar-sweetened beverages, which is not the only contributor to obesity and is probably the prime one where we can have the most immediate impact, short, medium, and long term. There's other things, but that's just the place to start. We're starting to see it in cities, Philadelphia, Berkeley. There's like nine cities in California that have done it. And so it's, it shows real promise and it can be politically popular if you take the money from the tax and use it to like support public education or something like that. Then you've got winning propositions there. And it's just getting over the political obstacles, the political hurdle, usually coming from the industry whose pocketbooks are most affected by it, the tobacco industry, the gun industry, the sugar-sweetened beverage, the cola industry, all of those. Those are the sources, and then they manipulate public opinion to try to get people to oppose what really makes so much common sense. Mm -hmm. So then you're saying this is outside of Medicare for All or not yeah. for All like that. There are all yeah. these ideas. Medicare for All, as much as I would appreciate and like it, doesn't mm -hmm. get at obesity, mm -hmm. doesn't get at gun violence, doesn't get at so many of the system problems. So yes, Medicare for All would be a great thing if we could get it. And there's so much else that needs to be done as well to make our nation the healthiest that it can be. So now, John, let's back up. Can you tell us what is Medicare for All? So Medicare for All is a, is a synonym for something that was more popular or more well-known years ago called single payer. So it's single payer healthcare, Medicare for All, they're the same thing. Ironically, there are polls, particularly from the Kaiser Family Foundation, that ask people, which do you prefer, Medicare for All or single payer, as though they were two discrete things. And generally what it shows is that people like Medicare for All significantly better than they like single payer, which is why Democrats like to say Medicare for All and Republicans like to say single payer, although they're getting comfortable saying Medicare for All too, because they know the public just gets perplexed and don't understand that they're talking about the same thing. And um, hearing that Medicare for All would be good policy in terms of improving the efficiency and effectiveness of the healthcare system. So what would you say are two or three things about Medicare for All that people should know? Well, so, so we have, we never created the US healthcare system in a thoughtful, comprehensive, forward-looking way. It was kind of like piece by piece, what fell together, what came together. President Harry Truman tried to create a single payer system well before Medicare in 1965, in the late 40s into 1950. And that would have basically said that government runs the basic health insurance program for all Americans. And everybody is covered as a right of citizenship and they can go to the hospital and the physician that they want, and then the hospital and the physician bill the program and then get paid. And there's other ways to manage that, but that's the core thing. And what it does significantly is it reduces substantially the administrative overhead of our current system. We have literally 
thousands of individual payers of medical services and the insurers, the people who collect the premiums and pay the bills, have an immense administrative cost structure managing that. But then every hospital, every physician practice, every home health agency has their own massive administrative office to deal with the paper shuffling. And it's completely non-value added to the health of America. It is just dead weight loss that gives nothing of real value except for mythical choice. Insurers always like to say, oh, but people desire the choice of their insurance company. People desire the choice of their hospital and their physician and really care about that. And they can be lulled into thinking it matters, but it's really just which insurance company is going to manipulate them the most or the least. And so that's, but so that's, that's the, big main piece is that there's this massive waste. Other systems, by the way, chiefly I look at Switzerland, Germany, Netherlands, also have largely private health insurance, but somehow they're able to do it and they spend less than half of what we spend on the administrative costs because even though they have private health insurance, for the most part, their private health insurers are required to be nonprofit and are heavily regulated by the state and in some cases don't even compete. So they don't do much marketing or selling and the systems are all set up so everybody pays roughly the same thing. So it's just, it's a much easier way. So that's probably of all the advantages and there are others, that's the biggest advantage of junking our system and moving toward just a unified financing system. You don't have to make physicians, government employees. You don't have to make hospitals owned by the state. That's what they do in Great Britain, but you don't have to do that. They don't do that in Canada. And you do that and you have more money that's now being paid for useless bureaucracy. You have that money. You can invest it in better health benefits. You can have lower taxes, you can invest in other societal goods like education and infrastructure. And so if we look over, say, about 40 years, starting in the 1980s, which I would categorize as the modern period, the era that we've been living in, you go back to 1981 with President Ronald Reagan, there was a shift in American society away from the Franklin Delano Roosevelt New Deal looking toward bigger, more government, and toward Reagan, lower government, lower taxes. And so in the early 80s, it started in the 70s, but really in the 80s, it really started to take off where there was a new mindset. And the mindset said, yes, healthcare is messed up. Healthcare doesn't work. This is going back into the 1980s, and everybody agreed with this. It was thought it was too expensive and so forth. And so people said, well, so maybe the problem, the reason our system is so messed up is because there's too much government. And so what we need to do is we need to deregulate as much as we can. We need to push government aside and we need to encourage more of the free market in healthcare and let the for-profit sector, including shareholder-owned companies, into the system and let them do their thing. And just like with computers and cars and telephone services, you unleash competition, you get 
better service, you get more products, you get it at stable or reduced costs. And the notion that that would flip into healthcare was widely believed and widely accepted and is still significantly respected today as a point of view. If you listen to most Republicans in Congress talk about healthcare, the first thing they'll say is say, the problem with our healthcare system is too much government. And so it's still there and you can hear it in people's language and you can have your own judgments. But what we've seen over this 40 year period is we've seen skyrocketing rates of Americans who don't have health insurance. We have seen dramatic increases over 40 years in the cost of healthcare and health insurance. All societies are on a trajectory where the cost of healthcare in those countries trends up over time. In the United States, and I've got the chart, but you can't see it on a podcast, <laughs> you can see that in the early 80s, Healthcare spending in the U.S. was at a par, was par, was high, but it was in the pack of other leading nations. And it was in the early 80s that all of a sudden, boom, it took off like a rocket and distanced itself from the rest of the pack. And over the past 40 years, the distance has leveled off at some points, but for the most part, it's just gone higher and higher. So that today we spend about what well, we spend the last estimate is 17.7% of our nation's gross domestic product on healthcare, on medical care. And then the most expensive, the second most expensive is Switzerland, and they spend about 12.5%, 12.7%. That's the second. So, so for Switzerland to us, we spend 50% more on healthcare than Switzerland does. And if you look at all of the health indicators, Switzerland runs circles on quality, on access, on equity, on value, on everything that you can name. We are laggards behind Switzerland, except for probably product innovation of drugs and medical devices. And that is the thing that is held out all the time. It said, well, if you try to clamp down on prices, you'll have fewer new drugs coming off the market. And to some extent, that may be true, but there's regulation of drug prices all over Europe, and they have drug companies, and they produce new innovative drugs. So you know, there might be less, and there's arguments right now about how much less. But where it is right now is that we are paying by far the most for prescription drugs we're paying. You know, people ask, why are costs so high? What explains high costs? And the answer that economists figured out and really articulated in the early 2000s, it was an article by uh, an economist and others named Uwe Reinhardt. He died last year, just a brilliant health economist, a German immigrant into the country. And he wrote a famous article in Health Affairs, I think it was 2003, to try to explain why, our, why healthcare costs so much in the United States. And the headline of the article said it all. The headline was, it's the prices, stupid. <laughs> that was the headline. And so whenever you know anybody who's paid attention to health policies asks, why does our system cost so much? It's the price is stupid. You know, that's kind of what explains it. And so anyway. So just to recap, the biggest benefits of single payer would be to eliminate waste and administrative costs. And one more time for our listeners, could you offer a concise definition of single payer? Single payer means getting rid of all of the 
private health insurance companies in the system and creating one common insurance pool or market for all US citizens and residents. And they get their health care paid for through there, right from birth. They don't even have to necessarily, depending on how it's done, sign up. But you know, in France, they have a system like this, and everybody gets a card from the French national health insurance is called the carte vitale. And it's a green card. And it's very pretty. I've seen it. It's very attractive. <laughs> and you just, you have it. If you lose it, you can get it replaced. And you go to any hospital or doc, you show your card. You might have a little copay or something like that. And that's it. And that's how, and then there's a billing process and so forth. Some people say that the root of all evil, and there's a lot of belief of this in the US healthcare system, is it's not necessarily the high prices, but it is our fee-for-service payment system. And what we mean by fee-for-service is that, is that you come to me and I'm a doc for some illness or whatever. I diagnose you, I test you, I give you things, I do things, and then I bill the payer. And so I get paid more the more patients I see. And so the incentive is not even to do the best for you, the incentive is to do the most for you. So people believe that is inherently wasteful. There's a problem with that simple view. And the problem is that all of those other advanced countries, Germany, France, Britain, Netherlands, you name it, Australia, Japan, all these countries that do so much better than us largely have systems based on fee-for-service. So my friend who runs the Commonwealth Fund, David Blumenthal, a really smart, thoughtful physician, used to be at Mass General, now, um, now running the Commonwealth Fund in New York City, his answer to me said, no, it's not fee-for-service. The root of all evil is unregulated fee-for-service. Unregulated fee-for-service, where you have fee-for-service payment and providers basically have the freedom to charge as much as they possibly can. That's what creates the cost catastrophe that we experience in the United States. And I, I think he nailed that on the head when I asked him that. And when you say single payer is getting rid of all private insurance, mm -hmm. is that a must? No, not necessarily. Okay. So for example, in Canada, which a lot of people look at as you know the icon of the kind of system they would like, who, who would prefer a single payer, the single payer system provides a base, basic level of coverage. And then if people want to, people can buy private supplemental coverage for what's not covered in the basic package. Same thing in Australia. Australia has a basic universal system for everybody that generally doesn't go as high as people would like in terms of you know, private rooms in the hospital and things like that. So a large proportion of Australians then buy supplemental coverage on top of that. So yeah, most, there's it's very few systems in advanced countries that are just all public insurance, even Great Britain, 
which is the closest to a socialized system, has made a lot of changes. And so now there are ways to buy private insurance and skate around the National Health Service and so forth. So different ways to doesn't mean the end of private insurance, but it would mean a dramatic, dramatic shrinkage of that sector. Stay tuned for episode three, where we finish off our interview with John McDonough discussing the political feasibility of Medicare for All in the United States. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website where we will have a summary of the episode and links and articles for additional learning. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.